how has your opinion of him changed? Dramatically, really. And obviously I'm trying to champion other people to try and view Henry through fresh eyes, really. The Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everyone. This is Heather Darcy with Tudor's Dynasty podcast. You might also know me from my two books, Anna, Duchess of Cleves, The King's Beloved Sister, which looks at Anna of Cleves' life from the German perspective and is out now and soon this summer in the UK and this autumn in the US. You can pick up Children of the House of Cleves, Anna and her siblings, which looks more at what Anna's family was up to in Germany during her lifetime. I am delighted to be joined today by Nathan Amin. Hello, Heather. How are you? Yeah, I'm fine. Always good to be back with Tudor's Dynasty podcast. You guys have been there since the start, so I always like coming back. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I am just fascinated with all the information that you've brought to us about Henry VII and his life. What keeps you going with this topic? Um, I mean, when I first started researching Henry VII about, well, probably about 12 years ago now, 13 years, there was nothing out there about him. You know, it very much felt like it was just me on my own discussing Henry, you know, the, the two previous biographies written about him. One had been written in 1997 and one had been written in 1972. So, you know, I started researching, I started setting up a Facebook page and, you know, lo and behold, gradually, a few more people got in touch that they like Henry VII as well. Now, over the last 10 years, the topic has really blown up. Um, Henry VII is now very much one of the key Tudor figures here in the UK. Henry VII is now part of the high school curriculum. So there is a whole generation of 17, 18-year-olds out there and teachers who have become super engrossed in the subject. So it's almost like, you know, this is Henry VII's time. And equally, you know, no one comes to the subject already known everything about their favourite king or queen or historical person. You know, we start off as beginners as well. So, you know, I'm only really just getting started in my knowledge and my understanding of Henry VII. Uh, now is in the time to to drop him just as he's becoming popular. You know, this is Henry's time and hopefully with a few more books in me, this could be my time as well. How has the way you viewed Henry VII changed between your first book and then you, your second book, Tudor Pretenders? I know that just came out on paperback a little bit ago. How has your opinion of him changed? dramatically really and obviously i'm trying to champion other people to try and view henry through fresh eyes really when i first started reading about well the tudors really you know we all normally start off with henry the eighth and the and the six wives and so on um and henry the seventh just seemed to be this guy at the start 
a chapter if he was lucky. Henry the Seventh was a king from Wales who usurped the throne. He was boring. He was an accountant king. He only cared about counting his treasure. Everybody hated him. He was a financial tyrant. Anyway, moving on, Henry the Eighth. That is how you know my introduction to Henry the Seventh was, and for a lot of people, it's it still is. You know, the boring, dour accountant king. Once you start to really study Henry, you really start to put flesh to the man. And he was, you know, he was a very charismatic figure. You know, far from this dour accountant king, there are untold records, uh, chronicler accounts and financial um, payments that really help bring him to life. You know, we see a loving family man. We see someone who was charming and impressed foreign ambassadors. His payment records are incredible. You know, this was a man... Yes, Henry VII was perhaps the most avaricious king England's ever had. He was grasping. He did do everything he could to really, you know, replenish that uh, royal treasury. Some of it was pretty, you know, pretty tyrannical in the way that he got hold of the money, but he didn't keep it. You know, Henry VII was not uh, Ebenezer Scrooge. Henry Tudor brought money in, but he then spent it lavishly. And in his financial records, we see things like just how much money he spends on dancers, musicians, uh, you know, mead and and wine. You know, this is a man who really knew how to have a good time. You know, he's a lot more, uh, again, just a key word, he's a lot more charismatic than we always give him credit for. And it is good to see that change slowly in our understanding of Henry. And, you know, there's still a lot more work to be done there. And hopefully we do continue to to, to really pad him out and turn him from this two-dimensional figure into a man who must have had such a force of nature that he was able to convince, you know, thousands of people to march into England, probably to their deaths. He was able to convince them to follow him. You know, that that's some leader there. You know, people aren't just following him for no reason. They've looked him in the eyes. They've listened to him speak. They've, you know... They, they've beheld him before them as the man that he was and decided this is the man that I want to follow. Even during his reign, and it was a tough 24-year reign, he did punish, particularly towards the end, a lot of his um, his subjects financially to the point that by the time he died, you know, he certainly was not loved, but he was respected. Again, Henry was able to really push the boat out there and not... Uh, be deposed from his throne like a Rich III, like an Edward IV, like a Henry VI. He managed to retain his throne. What does that say about how people must have viewed him as a leader? You know, again, did they love him? Perhaps not, but they certainly respected him for who he was. And that says a lot for, you know, leadership qualities. So talking about the Tudor pretenders, can you tell us who they are and why they were such an important threat to Henry VII? So history and Henry VII himself wanted us to believe that the point that he won uh, the crown of England, Bosworth Field, 1485, was the moment that peace and prosperity was returned to England. I mean, he himself uh, tried to tried to spread that idea, and obviously it was taken up later on by Shakespeare in his famous plays. You know, the union of the warring houses of York and Lancaster, everything is now... Uh, hunky-dory. It wasn't quite that way, because Henry, by becoming king, had 
he had done two things, really. He had displaced some of the old Richard III supporters who lost their offices. But by usurping the throne fairly easily in the end, he also, uh, you know, spread the message that this this crown can be won. You know, if we make a challenge to it, if Henry Tudor can become king, then God, so can anybody else. So you did end up having a small cabal of anti-Henry VII supporters who had lost everything and had decided to try and wrest the claim back. Now, I do come down on the view that the two pretenders, Lambert Simnel and Perkin Warbeck, were imposters and they weren't real princes of York. Um, other people have different opinions. Uh, I do implore those who, whichever side of the argument you fall on, to perhaps check out my book, Henry VII and the Two Pretenders, because uh, I do put forward the argument for both sides. I do try and investigate it, and it's just my opinion on the scale of probability that they were imposters. But the key thing is, is that whether they were princes or whether they were imposters, these two separate episodes during Henry VII's reign, there were just enough... Uh, dissidents, rebels, able to try and put together a conspiracy. Now, when it was all said and done, they weren't really a threat to Henry VII. Uh, Henry VII overcame Lambert Simnel conspiracy in battle uh, fairly easily in the end, uh, and Perkin Warbeck never really grew up too much apart from being uh, a tenure nuisance. But... The key thing when you study Henry VII and when you have to put yourself into his shoes is that he didn't know that he was going to overcome these challenges and he didn't know that he was going to die a wealthy old man in his bed able to pass on his crown. He lived every day with the fear of being deposed. One of the criticisms of Henry VII is that he's a, he was a paranoid, suspicious king. Well, obviously. I mean, he had spent most of his childhood escaping Yorkist assassins. He'd spent 14 years in exile being hunted down by Yorkists. He became king at 28, and they had to spend the next 24 years wondering if today was the day he was going to get a knife in the back or the front or the head or wherever his assassin would come for him. Of course he was vicious and paranoid. Who wouldn't be? But it is part of that paranoid suspicion that makes the man who he was and ultimately made his reign successful because he went all out to try and make himself too rich and too powerful for his enemies to topple him um, so that he could pass the crown on to his son. You know, it's very important to note that uh, I think six of the previous nine kings of England had been deposed. There had been no successful bequeathing of royal power in 87 years to an adult heir. You know, Henry VII was the man who broke this royal curse in the 15th century. Um, and for that, we have to give him quite a lot of, you know, quite a lot of the plaudits. Can you tell us more about the origins of both Simnel and Warbeck for people who might not be as familiar with the pretenders? Um, so I'll, I'll give you, obviously... Because uh, through my research, I do believe they were both imposters. So um, my reading of Lambert Simnel is that in 1486, there was a conspiracy against Henry VII led by two brothers, the Staffords. Uh, these were old retainers of 
George the Duke of Clarence, that brother of York who had been drowned in Malmsley, Malmsley wine. They tried to rebel against Henry VII and they tried to lead, uh, they tried to rouse the men of Warwickshire. But when the men of Warwickshire came out, they said, well, who are you? Who are you in support of? And they claimed they were in support of the young Earl of Warwick, the Duke of Clarence's son. But if you don't have a figurehead for your rebellion, your rebellion is not going to work. So very quickly, the two Stafford brothers were arrested. Uh, fast forward a year later, a new rebellion erupts. By this time, there is a 10-year-old boy at the front of the rebellion, the boy that we know as Lambert Simnel and who they claimed was the Earl of Warwick. Now, the Earl of War- the real Earl of Warwick was actually in the Tower of London at the time, so he couldn't be used for this rebellion. Therefore, I believe that uh, a young boy, a pretender, an imposter, was found. Now, this conspiracy has its roots in Oxfordshire, and all of the main principal characters involved in it were from a small Oxfordshire circle who were intent on toppling Henry VII. And they found this young boy, Lambert Simnel, uh, in in Oxford. Uh, we've got enough records to suggest that the Lambert Simnel family and the name were present in Oxford. His father, Thomas Simnel, was a joiner, and he was renting land from one of the Arby's in Oxford. You know, what I believe is very simply is that for this rebellion to work against Henry VII, the rebels needed somebody at the front of the army that they could say to supporters, look, we have the Earl of Warwick, and therefore that is the origins of the Lambert Simnel affair. It moved over to Ireland, which was a very Yorkist isle, and they drew a lot of support in Ireland, um, and they invaded England and were toppled. The real Earl of Warwick uh, never left the tower. So that's the origins of the Lambert Simnel conspiracy. Perkin Warbeck is a little bit more difficult to pin down, but it's, it's still similar in some respects. A couple of years after the Lambert Simnel affair collapsed, there was another anti-Henry uh, VII movement brewing in France. Now, France and England at this time were in a state of war. And this man over in, I, in, in France called John Taylor, he was an old supporter of Richard III. He sent a letter back to England saying to one of his supporters, watch out for next year, someone's coming. And suddenly, lo and behold, this young, handsome, 17-year-old youth that we now know as Perkin Warbeck surfaced in Ireland, claiming first to be Richard III's bastard son and then claiming to be Richard the younger of the princes in the tower, Richard of York. It is a complex uh, case and a complex story. Um, there are many people who believe that he was legitimately one of the princes in the tower. Uh, it's not something I, after all my research, believe. Um, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't stake my house on it. I wouldn't bet, you know, a uh, hundred pound or a hundred dollars or a hundred euros on. On, it, on me being correct, but I believe that, again, that the, the odds of probability are that Perkin Warbeck was actually a, a, a youth called Piers Osbeck from Tournai in France. We have plenty of historical evidence that show that there was legitimately a Piers Osbeck living in Tournai. I think, I think personally what's happened is that this guy, John Taylor, has sourced Piers Osbeck 
Um, he has dressed him up to be a Yorkist pretender and he's brought him with him to Ireland to start this invasion. A year later, um, you know, Warbeck has now moved from Ireland over to um, the Low Countries and he's starting to claim that he is a real prince. The French have reached a deal with Henry VII's England and the French revealed to Henry that all along Perkin Warbeck was nothing more than a fraud. So we have this idea that still exists that is quite incorrect, really, that Henry VII was so fearful of Perkin Warbeck because he didn't know if he was or wasn't a true prince. It's nonsense. Henry VII was clear all along that this boy was a fraud because the French told him so because the conspiracy started in France. Um, so so that, that that's the start, really, of Perkin Warbeck. And he did then go on to spend the next 10 years claiming to be this prince, attempting to invade England. Um, and each time he failed, because it turns out he just wasn't a very good warrior. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So as we're talking about Henry VII and the Tudor pretenders and also some of the new information that you've learned about Henry VII's behavior with the exchequer, it sounds like, if I may, Henry VIII really did inherit a lot of his father's characteristics, at least early on in the reign. Uh, Possibly. I mean, the the key thing, obviously, that Henry VIII does seem to have inherited is that Tudor paranoia about um, stabilizing the reign and the future by having that male heir. I mean, Henry the Seventh. You know, we, everyone knows that he lost his 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 eldest son Arthur at the age of you know when Arthur was fifteen. But many people don't also notice that Henry the Seventh lost another son, a uh, young Prince Edmund. You know, he had three sons, and two of them died early, and everything came to rest on the shoulders of the future Henry the Eighth. And that is some burden for Henry the Eighth to then take forward, having been schooled from childhood, the importance of continuing this Tudor lineage to stop England from descending into civil war. Modern historians, modern social media, um, you know, commentators can can suggest how silly and ridiculous this was, particularly with the hindsight of how great a Queen Elizabeth I would turn out to be. But when you put in, you have to put yourself into the the shoes and the time and the mind of the person that you're studying, and it's very straightforward, really, to see from Henry the Seventh's viewpoint. If he didn't have a son, and if he didn't secure the succession, England was going to get destroyed, and it's going to turn inwards, and his family's going to be ruined forever. And the same thing, his son inherited that from his father. Um, and obviously, going even further, to, to an extent, Elizabeth I did as well. I mean, she obviously had her own succession problems that she, uh, you know, resolved one way or the other, depending how much input one believed she had in the Stuart succession. So switching back to Henry VII specifically, you, you've told us that he's a very charismatic king. Do you have any examples that you can share with us of some of his behavior? Uh, yeah, I mean... 
the key thing that I like when it comes to studying Henry VII is that we obviously know that he had um, a good small group of chroniclers around him who were writing about him. Now, it is true that these these chroniclers did give quite flattering portrayals of Henry. I mean, some call him today propagandists. I think propagandists is perhaps too strong a term for what they were, but obviously they were going to, you know, they were going to big up their king in a way that modern newspapers still big up their preferred politicians. Um, they're not as flattering as many people who've never read them seem to believe. You know, they do criticise him at times. But the work of Polydor Virgil, the work of uh, Bernard Andre, the Crowland Chronicler, they do generally portray Henry quite well. The accounts that I prefer, however, to try and move away from this, oh, well, of course they would say that kind of mentality, is the foreign ambassadors. So we've got some fantastic accounts um, that were written during the reign of Henry VII from, uh, you know, the ambassadors from Venice, uh, from Genoa, and from Spain. Um, obviously, everyone knows that as we move into the reign of Henry VIII, the famous one is Eustace Chapuis. Henry had his own similar versions. And they're the ones who really do go to town about what a wonderful father Henry VII was, uh, how charismatic he was when he spoke. When he spoke, his eyes lit up and he had a big smile. Um, it was just, you know, the, these are really cogent, uh, precise accounts of his character. And the problem with with the foreign ambassadors is that they weren't trying to flatter Henry VII. That wasn't the point of what they were trying to do. He wasn't their master. These were private messages that were sent home to Spain and to Italy um, to just declare what these ambassadors had seen and observed. So we could take them as quite truthful accounts, really. You know, they had no truck in this battle of trying to flatter Henry VII. That's why I do like those particular accounts. So I'm always keen to suggest to anyone studying the period of Henry VII to look closely at these accounts written by foreign ambassadors. What are some of the more surprising things that you found about Henry VII? That he loved Welsh mead. There's quite a lot of payments for that in his accounts. Um, being Welsh myself and loving mead, that is something I do always particularly like to read about. Clearly, I'm guessing Henry must have developed some sort of liking for mead during his youth in Wales. And when he became king with all the money in the world, um, however ill-gotten some of it may have been, he did like to spend it on mead. Uh, and I, when I first came across that in his financial chamber books, uh, my only thought was, that's my boy. So you say Welsh mead. Is that because the English drank a lot of ale around this time? And maybe he just preferred a different flavor? Uh, well, I mean, mead would have been would have been extant in England at the time as well. But I suppose with, this, with Henry specifically requesting Welsh mead, it was actually, you know, like a regional variant called methaglin, uh, which I think is essentially mead but more spiced, kind of like a spiced mead. Um, clearly, for whatever the reason, he had a strong preference for the Welsh mead, probably the mead of his childhood, the one that he he liked and had got used to in in very similar circumstances to many of us today. You know, I currently am a Welsh person living in London, and there's nothing I like better than going home and getting some Welsh cakes. Uh, you know, we still like the the food of the era that we're from, particularly 
the exiled person. You know, this is something we can all, who don't live in our homelands in the modern day, this is something that we all can still relate to. You know, we just want what reminds us of our childhood. And I think for Henry, it was Welsh Mead. Do you have any anecdotes about Henry that you could share with us? I mean, just circling back to that, th the idea of paranoia, the thing that is often underappreciated about Henry VII, even before he became king, he'd already fled for his life three times. Um, the famous one is when he's 14 years old. Uh, he's running from the Yorkists. He escapes to, to the West Wales town of Temby, and him and Jasper Tudor escape by going through some underground tunnels and escaping abroad. Most people are aware that Henry at least left the country at 14. When he was over in Brittany, where he lived for 12 years in exile, uh, when he was 19 years old, the English king, Edward IV of the House of York, finally agreed a deal with Henry's uh, guardian, the Duke of Brittany. Um, in exchange for money, uh, you know, the, I think the court is an English boat full of gold, the Bretons were going to hand Henry over. If Henry steps foot on that boat and comes back to England, he's almost certainly going to come back and be dispatched with. The previous Lancastrian claimant, Henry Holland, the Duke of Exeter, just two years earlier had mysteriously drowned coming back from France on the boat of Edward IV. And uh, I know you guys listening can't see this at the moment, but I am putting mysteriously drowned in air quotes. Um, if it was in a book, I'd probably put it in italics. Uh, for mysteriously drowned, read murdered. Um, you know, so Henry the Henry, Henry Tudor knew if he came back to England, he would almost certainly fall victim to something similar because Edward the Fourth was keen to get rid of all Lancastrian claimants. Now, Henry is handed over to the English ambassadors and he's brought all the way to the port of Sid Marlow. And the ship is there, bobbing in the harbour, waiting for him. At the last minute, he starts to cry out. He's got an illness. His stomach hurts or some other uh, some other disease. You know, he's, he's crying that he's in pain and he's essentially faking an illness. Whilst he's doing this, the Bretons have changed their mind. They now don't want to give back Henry because they feel that it would be a question on their honour. You know, the Duke had promised to save and protect Henry, and now he's handed him over like a sheep to, to the wolf, as, the, as the, the chronicler reports. Whilst the English and the Bretons are arguing, Henry, still faking an illness, manages, manages to slink away, and he runs through the little streets of St. Malo until he gets to the cathedral and he bangs on the door, screaming that he wants sanctuary. The monks let him in. The English, they don't massively care too much about sanctuary. Under the Yorkists, they had already breached sanctuary a few times previously. Um, so the English tried to get into the church. The local, uh, the local Bretons, they're not having it. They're not having these English invaders come and try and break down their church. They stand guard and they fight off the English. The English leave. Henry is saved. So Henry, by faking his illness and escaping, he has saved his life at 90 years old from being essentially killed. Now, we fast forward another couple of years. We go forward to 1484. 
Henry is still in Brittany, but this time he is claiming to be the rightful King of England. He is starting his crusade against Richard III. Richard III knows he needs to nip this in the bud, so again he sends money over to the Bretons. The Bretons agree. You know what? We are going to... Um, we're going to betray Henry Tudor and we're going to turn him over to Richard III because the Bretons need English military support to fight off the French. So they have no choice. They have to give up Henry VII, or Henry Tudor, to save themselves. Word somehow reaches Margaret Beaufort back in England about this. Now, I'm going to suspect that Richard made this plan with his council, and on his council sat a certain Thomas Stanley, Margaret Beaufort's husband. I think Margaret uh, Thomas Stanley has told his wife what's about to happen. She has sent over a messenger to, to France, who has then managed to gain contact with Henry in Brittany. So one night, Henry decides to tell his Breton captives, uh, I am going to just go see a friend a couple of miles away. I'm going to take three or four of my bodyguard and I'll be back. He starts riding out um, of the small, uh, oh, sorry, of the capital of Brittany, Van. He gets a couple of miles and they suddenly, him and his small little group of, of, uh, of his bodyguard, they leave the road and they go into local woodlands. Henry suddenly changes his clothes. He puts on the clothes of a servant uh, and he basically dons a disguise. He gets back on his horse and now he rides nonstop as fast as he can all the way to the French border. The Bretons realise what's, what's happening. They realise Henry has basically made an escape. They chase after him and this chase goes on through the woods and the streets of Brittany for hours until finally Henry, still dressed like a servant, reaches the French border. Once he's in France, he claims asylum. It is said that he only made it with one hour to spare. Again, if he had been captured and if he hadn't got that message, he was days away from basically being executed once he was back in English hands. Once he's in France, he now claims asylum and the rest is ultimately history. The French go on to basically put Henry Tudor on the English throne. So those are three incidences of Henry escaping for his life in incredible, you know, Hollywood-esque circumstances, even before he's become king. Um, you know, he's very much, I guess, he's, he's like the Houdini of the Wars of the Roses, isn't he? Um, in, in the way that he escapes. Um, and there we have it. Obviously, once he becomes king, he's already got these these, these experiences in the back of his mind. And this is how he, how we can now frame the rest of his kingship, why he was a paranoid slash suspicious king. Because people kept on trying to kill him. Makes sense to me. So I know you're working on a new project. Are you still doing things concerning Henry VII or is it totally different? Uh, it's still Henry VII at the moment. I seem to be finishing up uh, what I've started calling my unofficial Henry VII trilogy. As many of you will know, I did write the biography of the Beaufort family to try and explain how Henry got to Bosworth, you know, his maternal relations. I then wrote Henry VII and the Tudor Pretenders, which is essentially a, a, a biography of Henry's reign, really, through the eyes of the Pretenders, but it is a Henry VII reign book. 
So now I'm writing the book that I've always wanted to write, which is the Welsh Tudors. So I'm now exploring Henry's Welsh heritage, his Welsh family, um, to put essentially as the other side of that Beaufort book. Where did these Tudors come from? How did how within eighty years did Welsh rebels become English kings? Uh, and you know, I, I think it's a good book. Uh, you, you know, I, I think it's I think it's going to be interesting to many people to read. It's fast paced. You know, I'm covering two three hundred years. It's going to encompass Welsh history and English history, and it's really putting again the Tudors back into the context of their times. Henry Tudor. English history said Henry Tudor came from nowhere. Well, he didn't, and I'm going to show where he came from. And it does cover much of what I've discussed already, particularly those those dramatic escapes for his life. Nathan, thank you so much for coming to talk to us about all the work that you've done on Henry VII, and I'm really excited to see your next book when it's ready for us about Henry as a person of Welsh origin. Is there anything else you wanted to tell us today? Only that Henry VII is by far an underrated King of England and someone who does deserve and still deserves far more light shown on him. And, you know, as 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 Horrible History sung, who better than the original Tudor? Yes, absolutely. So thank you again for coming to talk to me today. This is Heather Darcy with Tudor's Dynasty podcast and great to have you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Speak to you soon. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. You can follow and support the Tudor's Dynasty podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon at Tudor's Dynasty.